From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. From Connecticut, I'm Erica Ducey. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Before we jump into today's amazing topic, a word from our sponsor, Cognac USA. So Cognac USA, Speed Rack, and us, Vine Pair, are hosting a cognac cocktail competition. And we're thrilled to offer 10 $1,000 scholarship prizes exclusively for professional bartenders. To enter, all you have to do is create an original cognac cocktail. But then you can also get bonus points on that, on that cognac cocktail for joining virtual webinars. So all you have to do in order to enter is visit cognacconnection.com for details and to enter. The deadline is August 31st. That's cognacconnection.com. Dot com, right? And all you gotta do is bring your most like dope original cognac cocktail. So like no Sazeracs, it's not original. I'm sure you could email Zach or Erica. They'll probably have great ideas for you on what. Yeah, don't steal anything from Erica's book. With. Exactly. Don't steal <laughs> anything from Erica's book. all the classics. So, uh, but yeah, so you just gotta you gotta deliver an amazing cognac cocktail, and then on top of that, uh, if you take part in some of these webinars, you own both you earn bonus points on that cocktail. So you can kind of like inch your way up a little bit higher. And then, you know, the finalists are going to actually demo those cocktails in front of uh, judges while on Zoom. But that's, you know, you got to get there first. So enter. And, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. Campaign is financed with aid from the European Union. Thanks, EU. All right. Now uh, let's get into today's topic. So uh, before we do, I guess before we jump into today's topic, like, you know, how'd you guys, I mean, Zach, you obviously were not affected, but Erica, How'd you survive that hurricane? Yeah, so pretty much everyone around us lost power, but somehow we did not. So I'm, I'm not sure why we got lucky, but uh, it was it was not too bad for us. Wow, you got a 2020 win. <laughs> I know. It was crazy around here, man. Like, I, I didn't know that, like, trees in Brooklyn could go down. <laughs> like, just, like, all of a sudden. And it was very fast, too. Like, I feel like it, it lasted only, like, two hours or so and in those two hours the winds were absolutely insane and then like i came out of my apartment and there were just down trees all over the place but besides that you know i think we're, we're lucky that we still have power too because yeah a lot of people lost power and still don't have power when we're recording today on on the 6th of august uh which sucks so if you are one of those people you know uh we we definitely feel your pain and, and hope you're doing okay because it was crazy mm, yeah yeah, I was gonna say uh, it rained in Seattle today, but that's all I got. So, I, so, so that's my question for you, Seattle people. I'm going to show a little interest in, in your in your home. Do you, so, do you have extreme weather? Like, I know you get a lot of no. rain, but like, you don't have tornadoes and hurricanes or any of that kind of stuff, do you? Not, not as of yet. Just, just rain and earthquakes. That's about all we got. You can uh, get earthquakes in Seattle. Oh yeah, absolutely. We're we're on a huge fault. Uh, there's you if you if you want to scare yourself and you live in this area, you can go just Google like Seattle big one and uh, read all the, <laughs> the disaster porn. Really, I really, oh, yeah. that's crazy. I had no idea Seattle was also so, a problem. Okay, so here's a really funny story that I think you will both appreciate. So as uh, as you all know, I went to NYU for for undergrad, and so I moved to New York uh, as an 18 year old. And one of my first classes was a big science lecture, uh, and you know, we're maybe 15, 20 minutes into the first day of class, you know, we're going over the syllabus or whatever. And all of a sudden the whole room starts to shake and me being from Seattle, I'm like, oh shit, it's an earthquake. And it took me about 10 seconds of seeing like absolutely no one else in the room even noticed to realize, oh no, we're just actually like really close to the subway line. And what's shaking (laughs) the room is the subway, not, you know, a massive earthquake, but it really freaked me out and and would occasionally (laughs) from time to time still catch me unawares in that lecture. Uh, which may or may not explain my not great grade in that class. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Oh man. Well, so today's uh, today's topic 
is direct to consumer, which I think is, is a really interesting topic. I mean, I know we've talked about it a little bit before, but not to this extent. And really, uh, Zach, you proposed this topic, so why don't you kick it off? Sure. So I think to me, the thing that's really interesting to look at here is there's a confrontation brewing that that I think would have been brewing in any in, in sort of any timeline, but the one we have now where the U.S. is still you know really kind of closed down to a lot of uh, on-premise sales of, of wine, beer, spirits, and producers who rely on the on-premise channel are, are predominantly smaller producers, or at least smaller producers predominantly rely on those channels as opposed to off-premise or direct-to-consumer sales. And, you know, the U.S., and we've talked about this to some extent on the podcast before, has this preposterous and totally antiquated patchwork of laws surrounding the sale and, and transport and all that of alcohol. And, and it all dates to the end of prohibition and sort of this attempt to give states the ability to do whatever the hell they wanted, um, because a lot of states at the end of prohibition were still, you know, quasi dry or, or wanted to greatly restrict alcohol sales. And the problem is, you know, you have all these great producers in this country of, of spirits, of wine, of beer, who once you step outside the boundaries of your own state, often cannot sell to directly to a consumer or can only sell to consumers in certain states that may have reciprocity with the state they're in or may have to get expensive uh, licensing or permitting in other states. And again, these are things, these are issues that the really big producers out there don't have a problem with. They have the money, they have the manpower, and they just have the know-how to do it. But if you're a small producer of, of any of these uh, categories, but especially hard alcohol, which we'll talk about, I think, in a little bit, the, it's just it's very very difficult and and again in a in normal times whatever those are you know those producers might be able to sell their wine to a wholesaler or sell their spirits to a wholesaler or their beer to a wholesaler who might then be able to distribute it across um, a region or a, the whole country and that gives those those producers access to to consumers but with restaurants and bars largely closed and with not without the ability to go direct to consumer really the only thing that's standing are retail stores and most of the retail stores are big national chains with big national purchasing agreements that aren't interested in stocking a lot of small small production products especially ones from outside of the state that the store might be located in so so you have this issue where you have these producers who really want to expand their markets the only way they can stay afloat right now but you have a system both a sort of legalistic and then an industry industry system that is designed to keep that from happening. And there's a fight coming because consumers and producers alike want more freedom and wholesalers and retailers don't. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the interesting things here is that when you read about it, we had, we had our reporter, uh, Tim McCurdy this week, he wrote a piece about this. And when you actually look at the numbers uh, it does make you think twice about who who all of these restrictions is benefiting. So, for example, we know, like you were saying, Zach, that the small producers are having a really hard time with their distillery tasting rooms uh, closed. But um, we talked with one this week, Catoctin Creek in uh, Virginia. It's a rye whiskey producer. And they told us that they have been able to to ship in-state to consumers in Virginia since the state relaxed its laws in April. And since that time, even with a closed tasting room, they've been able to sell more DTC than they would during a normal uh, pre-COVID week.
week of distillery visitors. So for these small producers, it can make a huge impact. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy because it, it really can be something that is, uh, you know, very much beneficial to everyone. But I think what Zach is saying is really accurate, which is, you know, there is a reason that there that these laws are not looser, especially when it comes to spirits. And that's because, you know, selling through the three-tier system makes a lot of money for people in the middle. And especially on spirits, right? Spirits has a very high margin. Uh, you know, it's, they're always, as we learn on, on the media side, they're always the brands with the most money when it comes to marketing dollars. Uh, they're always the brands that seem to be the healthiest at the, you know, owned by the largest corporations, et cetera. And that's because there's, there's a lot of money to be made in the spirits world. And so, you know, there's a lot of lobbying power connected to that middle tier in DC that is preventing this direct to consumer from happening. And I think, you know, Zach, your, your hypothesis is very right there. I think there's a huge fight coming um, because one of the easiest ways to help a lot of producers after COVID is just simply relaxing the laws, right? It is one of the easiest ways in which we could do that, right? They, you're basically saying, look, if you think you have consumers out there, we're not going to have to have you worry about, you know, finding distributors and fighting for shelf space inside stores or working with third parties who do, you know, delivery like Drizzly, et cetera. If you think you have consumers and you have the ability to build some sort of mailing list that you can then market to directly, feel free to sell directly to them, right? That'd be the easiest way to allow a lot of these people to try to come back and then, and then, you know, live or die on their own, you know, based on their own work, right? Like it's it's not live or die now based on whether or not they could get shelf space in a bunch of different stores. It's live or die based on whether or not they could target the right consumers, market them in the right way, you know, build an email list, build a mailing list and then sell to them. But I just don't think that's going to happen because, you know, as you're saying, Zach, like there is just, there's just too much money involved. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're right. And I don't want to be this sort of uh, blindly optimistic political, uh, you know, sort of, novice uh, that I might actually be, but I'm going to, I'm going to pretend otherwise for the purposes of this conversation, at least. And and I think that the, the one thing that's true about what's going on now is that I think we're seeing, and again, this is not meant to, this is maybe broadly applicable to this country at the moment, but we're certainly seeing it in the, the specific space that we all talk about, which is that like, there were a lot of things that were basically broken that limped along because of inertia and because you know, there was just enough revenue to be found for just enough people that, you know, it worked. But I think we're finding right now that like so many of the systems that we put in place or that it came to came to exist, especially after prohibition, just don't work very well for anyone. You know, they create these sort of bizarre, convoluted government, uh, you know, agencies and um, regulations that don't really seem to serve any real vested public interest. I mean, I, I have I'll just dis, you know disclose. I've been trying to get a, a, a liquor or I should say a, a wine uh, permit in the state of Washington for what feels like years. And, you know, basically because of the way that our state's laws are written and the way they're designed to facilitate uh, or they're not designed to, for the 21st century, they, they sort of still look at e-commerce as like, you know, some sort of, you know, witchcraft. Um, it's really, really difficult. And, you know, we're in a time and a place where entrepreneurship you know, and all that is being strained as is by this crisis. And so to me, I think there should be a general societal interest in, you know, loosening and, and, and removing a lot of these restrictions that really don't 
benefit anyone except for, as we've mentioned, people in the middle of the three-tier system who whose job and, and in purpose is basically to take possession of these, you know, products to resell them because, ooh, alcohol is dangerous. And like, sure, yeah, but you know, it's not any more dangerous when it comes through the hands of a big or small distributor than it is when it comes from the winery, brewery, or distillery directly to your house. You know, you're just paying a lot more for it because it's, you know, two, one or two or three layers of profit have been baked into the cost you pay. And and I do think that, again, this is the, the, the thing that I've, that's come up forever is that alcohol laws in this country don't haven't changed because by and large consumers don't know or don't care. But I think, again, we're in a different place where people are stuck at home, where they're perhaps seeing that their selection is greatly limited because if you're shopping at some of the big online sites or if you're shopping at your local grocery store, your options are just limited in, in every category by what they choose to carry. And if you decide, oh, well, I want to go online and buy something I've heard about, you know, I read a great piece on Vine Pair about this producer in Virginia. I want to buy their rye. Well, if you're not in Virginia, tough shit. Like you're just out of luck entirely. And that does not mesh with our conception as, you know, modern 21st century, you know, consumers. I agree with that. I think that um, there also should be special consideration given to craft producers. So uh, if you look at the American Craft Spirits Association, um, 90% of the craft distilleries they work with make fewer than 10,000 bottles a year. So that is a very small amount in comparison to the Smirnoffs and the Tito's and like all of the other big brands that are out there. So it's, I think it's um, for what I'm thinking around direct to consumer. I, I think that this is one of the only lifelines that is going to help these craft producers. I care less about uh, the big producers, like they're on their own, but for the craft producers, I really think this is one of the few things that they can do to stay afloat during and after COVID until fine dining, until restaurants and, and bars and, you know, all of these uh, on-premise accounts are, are back. But even then, um, this puts some amount of power into their hands to be able to weather the storm. And without that, I just don't see, I think, I think so many of them, a huge percentage, the majority will close. I mean, I agree with you. The problem is that, you know, whenever this gets brought up, like there's the rational and then there's the reality. The rea- the rational is the argument you're making, which is that the majority of, of people that are going to benefit from direct to consumer are the craft brands, right? It's And those craft brands, the very, very large majority are never going to become much larger than they already are being direct to consumer, right? They're just, they have another sales channel and they can sell. They're not going to become the next like, I don't know, Warby Parker, right? That, that's, that's, I don't think that's going to happen for a lot of these producers, right? But that's the, the, the sort of the way that the second tier is going to go to their lot, have their lobbyists go to lawmakers and say th- that there could be the possibility of, right? That there could be this large brand that comes up and all of a sudden is direct to consumer. And then all of a sudden alcohol is just freely flowing around the country and we're swimming in it. And just every time a UPS truck stops, there's just alcohol on it. And all of a sudden anyone could grab that alcohol and, you know, and that, that that's what they're scared of, right? And so they're going to use all that fear to basically say to to all of the lawmakers, look, like we can't let this happen because while this may really 
not become a huge issue for a majority of producers. There's one or two for whom they could come in and really take advantage of the fact that there's a direct-to-consumer law. And I, I think it's like – it sucks, but until – you know, there are people in the craft side of the of the game that have enough financial backing to lobby in a way that convinces lawmakers to vote for their side instead of the other. I just don't really know if that's going to happen. And, uh, you know, it sucks. It really sucks because I think we're going to wind up seeing a lot of these brands, as you're saying, are going to go out of business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think lobbying is the only way uh, to do it. But I just wonder, you know, can the... Um, power of a craft producers go up against the wholesaler organizations like that's the question but here's the thing right so so the the question of lobbying i think is a really or the topic of lobbying is a really good point because we have seen you know over the last six to eight months this multiple efforts by uh people throughout the beverage trade wine specifically but but on all sides unite to try to rally support to either stop or curtail attempts by the U.S. Uh, Trade Department to impose tariffs on imports from the EU principally. And that was something where, you know, everyone from the big to the small was on the same side, right? It was like, this is going to be bad for business. Yes, the really big brands can weather it better, but none of them really want to see tariffs put in place because it's only going to hurt business. So it's deeply, I find it deeply hypocritical for those same brands to turn around and say, yes, 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 we must protect you know, our ability to bring wine, bring beer, bring spirits to consumers in this country at a reasonable price to not impose all these tariffs. And then at the same time, on the other side of their mouth, talk to lobbyists like, but alcohol is evil. We can't let just anyone buy it from anyone who makes it. Like, (laughs) we must be the shepherds of it. It's this incredibly hypocritical bullshit. And the problem is that alcohol, look, we all know, and we talk about it on this podcast a lot, like responsible drinking is a real thing and is a real challenge. And there are unfortunately way too many examples of irresponsible drinking. But in the end, you know, these laws do absolutely nothing to prevent that. I mean, it does not matter. Frankly, I, I think you probably find uh, an inverse relationship that the more restrictive the laws are, the, you know, the worse the behavior is. And that if we are honest and open and truthful about the fact that people like alcohol, that people are going to buy it, that people are going to, you know, consume it. And sometimes they're going to do so irresponsibly. And we don't let those scare tactics sway us. If we as a, as an industry and, and we as people in this country say, you know what, we think that having access to a wider and more diverse array of wine, beer, spirits from producers all over the country and frankly, all over the world is an unquestionable good. It is something we should not just tolerate, but advocate for. I don't think really, truly, there's an argument against that. And yes, there's a lot of money on the other side because there's a lot of money in the industry. And that in and of itself should be, you know, should illustrate just how fucked up the system currently is. But I, again, I, maybe I'm just being sort of naively optimistic in this, but but I think that you are seeing as our, as our options are curtailed because of COVID, you are seeing people awaken to the idea that like, well, wait a second, it's really important to me to be able to get wine, beer, spirits delivered to my house. And to be able to do that, it has to be legal. And it means that the shipping companies have to be comfortable taking it on and, and all that. And it's just, you know, the, the system that existed 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, does not work now. And yet we're still operating under it. I mean, it is. It's And look, I want to I want to be clear here. I I actually think that a lot of the the larger brand, the larger companies that own the larger brands actually would be 100% for DTC. 
I think it's it's that it's that it's the you know it's the distributors and wholesalers that won't be right. Like if you you can see by Constellation purchasing Empathy that they want to move into DTC too, right? Like they're all they're all looking for DTC options because they all want to have these direct relationships with the consumer. Like the entire you know trend we're moving towards in commerce in general in the United States is direct relationships between brand and consumer, and the the best way to do that is through a direct to consumer relationship. Right. If you are the one who is fulfilling, you can ensure how the product is delivered, how it shows up, what the packaging fully looks like, what the experience is like when you unbox that product, how then you communicate back with the consumer. It's, it's what makes some of the, you know, the most profitable startups, you know, of the last 10 years work. Right. It's, it's Warby Parker is successful because the experience is so amazing because they control it from the, you know, the entire time. Right. That's why people love it. That's why people have loved Everlane and Bonobos and things like that, because it's a really great experience. And there's a lot of alcohol companies who have been thinking about what that experience could be instead of putting that experience in the hand of even a Drizzly or a mini bar. Right. It's still not a great experience. It's a, it's a random person that shows up. The box could be damaged. The, the It could be in a black plastic bag. Like It doesn't feel premium, even if maybe you're buying a hundred dollar bottle of whiskey on Drizzly, like depending on where it was fulfilled from, it could be a really crappy experience the way it's delivered. And so these, you know, these brands that, that are owned by these larger companies want to, you know, control that experience. But we're not going to let that happen, I don't think, because unless you get those bigger brands involved, right? Can you convince, like, you know, the the Camparis, Diageos, LVMHs, Constellations, Galas of the world to also lobby in support of direct-to-consumer? Because if you could do that, then I do think we could see a much more likely scenario of direct-to-consumer direct liberalizing. But if you can't, because they're also a little bit nervous about the relationships they have with the second tier, then there's no, it's just not going to happen. Right. I think though this is where the this is where the the point that you're making is really important, Adam, which is that you know we existed in a world pre-COVID where that second tier was was hugely determinative. <clears throat> Pardon me, I say that again. We live in a world where that second tier was hugely determinative because a huge access point for brands, large and small, were restaurants and bars. And I'm not saying that we're never going back to restaurants and bars, but it's going to be a while, as I keep saying. And the access point now is people in their homes and to some extent also obviously grocery stores and things like that. But the reality for, for producers at all, at all sizes is they have to be looking at how do I connect to customers, especially with my more premium offerings, but, but even with, you know, sort of the, the less premium offerings, how do I connect to them in their homes where they're comfortable and safe and doing all their consuming and, and going to be for some long period of time, quite honestly. And, the world in general is moving that way. I mean, you know, we can talk about another time what the shift to a work from home permanent lifestyle means for our alcohol. I, I think that'd be a fascinating conversation too. Yeah. But the reality is it's coming. It's it's gonna be it's gonna be here, it's gonna stay. And if you're not positioned to thrive in that landscape, you know, you're 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 missing an opportunity. And I don't think that second tier does anything for you there. I don't think if you're Campari or, you know, Gallo or whoever, you get a lot out of partnering with them other than their ability to get products to shelves. And I just think, you know, I have, as someone who was a wine buyer for a long time, I have, let's say, a, not always the best impression of distributors and especially the large ones. Yeah. And and it's because, you know, like they're, they're kind of parasitic on the industry. They exist because of our laws. They don't do anything all that useful for the most part. And, you know, 
I wouldn't be sad to see them go out of business. And I'm sorry to my friends and, and even family who work in that industry, but that's the truth. Yeah. And, you know, wine has jumped on this a little bit more effectively because the laws have been more relaxed in more states. I think there's a, there are 33 or 35 states now where you can uh, get um, uh, wine delivery or um, and DTC laws are you know more relaxed uh, for wine and beer in general. But uh, still, it's been it's been amazing to me that even in those states and for those operations where uh, it is more relaxed, you've not seen wine even. Uh, jump on DTC uh, as effectively as it could have. I think in some of the statistics I've seen have been, you know, the sales, I think it was like five to, you know, some somewhere between like five and 20% of a general um, wine company's uh, sales are attributable to DTC um, or uh, other types of delivery. So I think that like that is just such a huge growing area of possibility for brands, whether they're wine or beer or spirits. Um, it's just really this uh, three-tier system that has got, you know, the system has, has, is making it so difficult for um, the producers to really make the gains of the products that they are producing. I agree. It's, it's, I mean, the whole thing is just absolutely, you know, nuts because we see the solution right in front of us of how we could help solve all of this. And it's just, it's frustrating because it seems like it's one of those things that, you know, just isn't going to happen. <laughs> I have hope that it will. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I know. I know. It's just like, you know, you know how long I've watched like Pennsylvania push, push, push for like there to be legal sales of alcohol in grocery stores. And, and I mean, I, I'm picking on Pennsylvania because my wife is from there. Well, and they have some of the worst laws, period. Yeah, and, and, but the lo- but the lobbying is really strong to not let it happen. Even here in New York State, right? The 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 grocery chains, et cetera, have pushed, pushed, pushed to allow for them to sell more than Chateau Diana, right? Like, <laughs> you're not familiar with Chateau Diana, Zach, you're lucky. Um, but, you know, and they just won't allow it to happen because the lobbying efforts are so strong amongst the retailers that say that, you know, they'd be put out of business, which I also don't think is true. You know, so it's just the whole thing, the, the alcohol laws in general in this country are so restrictive, but there are people that, as you said, Zach, have figured out a way to make a lot of money off of them. And so they've, you know, they've, they've really stifled innovation in a lot of ways. And I want to say one thing about that, that whole thing about, yeah, about retailers being like, we'll be we put out of business. Well, look, if your product offerings can't catch people's attention, if your product offerings suck, if you're not selling what people want, then Whose, pro- whose fault is that? Like, who is struggling here? You know, there's always going to be a place, I think, for, you know, for brick and mortar when done well. But if your if your business model is put a bunch of, you know, unremarkable crap in a store, like, that's a shitty business model. And maybe it worked when people didn't have other options. But nowadays, when you can go online and, or you know, it, it, again, to come back to the Warby Parker thing, like, yeah. you know, you got away with, people got away with selling shitty glasses for really high prices for a long time because there wasn't competition. And turns out that when there's competition, things get better for consumers. And and I'm not a, like, a free market radical here. I, I think I think a regulated marketplace is a really good thing. But, but this is regulated not for consumer benefit, but regulated for the benefit of existing companies that, again, just don't provide anything of societal or individual value. They just leech off of the 
product. And, and that's, I, I just, I don't get it. I don't get the point. Well, I think we should leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could rant a lot longer as you might, as you might have gathered. I can tell, but yes, I, I, I completely agree. And I think, look, like, you know, one of the first steps for anyone listening is if, you know, if we want to help a lot of these distilleries and uh, smaller producers that are really hurting right now, we should be reaching out. I think one of the easiest ways to do that and, and maybe the way, the way in is that, you know, there are a lot of these, you know, distilleries that have become especially uh, very vital to their local communities, right? They've become gathering places, potentially some of them also operating restaurants, et cetera, and they've become part of the fabric of communities. And it's reaching out to your elected officials in those local communities to explain to them what could happen if these places go out of business and explain that, look, if they're just allowed to be able to ship alcohol to people who live in that community and the surrounding communities, that would provide a very you know, necessary lifeline that could allow them to continue to operate uh, and potentially survive COVID and, you know, survive COVID post COVID. Right. And I think that might be what it takes is starting at really at the local grassroots level. I know we talk a lot about grassroots organizing right, right now in the country, but like really going grassroots to those, to the mayors, the city councilmen, et cetera, that then can hopefully bring it up the chain where, you know, it kind of becomes this thing that we're all supporting. I think that's the only way it happens. Because if, if we're just taking it to the, to the people who are at the end of, of the decision-making tree, right, the, the largest politicians, we know where they stand right now, right? They're, they stand with the people that help them get reelected on a national level, which takes a lot of money to do so. But the local politicians don't need as much money to get reelected and are more willing to listen to their constituents and their constituents whom may really love this distillery and may think that, you know, it employs 20 people in the town and has become a place where people celebrate birthdays and, you know, other milestones, et cetera. And maybe they give back to the fire department and stuff like that. And therefore you really should support them. Absolutely. I, I think, I think where I want to leave it is uh, in Tim's article, that is called uh, why craft distillers are calling to expand direct to consumer shipping. You know, it, it ends off with a really heartbreaking uh, note, which is Maggie Campbell, who at Privateer Rum, she's the head distiller there. It's a, a distillery based in Massachusetts. And she says, you know, every day I spend at least an hour answering emails and messages from individuals in places that want our rum and they can't get it. It's pretty hard as a business to know that you're not making that money. Yeah, it is. Oh, well, guys, it's been another great conversation. Um, you know, if you have thoughts on what we, we chatted about today as a listener, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, just shoot us an email at podcast.vinepair.com. We always love to know your thoughts. A lot of you emailed after the clean wine episode, which is why Zach and Eric are, are really pushing me that we have to do a next a, a follow up, which we probably will. And um, we have more articles on the topic coming. Stay yeah. tuned. <laughs> so, so let us know. And if there's other topics you want to cover, please uh, email that those in as well. Uh, before we go, obviously, another word from our sponsor, that amazing uh, Cognac Connection Challenge, the, the contest I discussed earlier, which is giving away $1,000 scholarships to qualified bartenders. All you got to do is create an amazing Cognac cocktail. The deadline is August 31st. Just go to CognacConnection.com. Again, that's CognacConnection.com to enter and for details. And guys, see you next week. Take care. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits.
Vinefair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Eric Adusi, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my Vinepair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vinepair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.